Should we celebrate Christmas? It seems that people are steeped in the materialism of what Christmas has become with all of its I want at this time of the year, doesn't it? I mean, we have that on one side, and then on the other side, we have the group that tells that how can Christians, how can they celebrate such a pagan holiday? Uh, and all the while that that group is doing that, they alienate themselves from how they can use the time that we have as an opportunity to share the gospel with the lost or to teach what the true meaning of the birth of Christ really means for believers. I have a good friend that his, one of his things is he, he, never, he does not do holiday sermons. Whatever holiday is, he's not going to fall into that. So what he does is he is the anti-holiday sermon guy for that day. So he actually preaches on the topic, but it's always in opposition to I love the God to death, but I just shake my head at those things. But this morning, I do want to talk to us about the birth of Christ, what we call the incarnation. Spurgeon had a quote that went like this, He that made man was, was made a man, God dwelling in human flesh. The incarnation. So I, wanted, I just want to say some things, and Randy touched on this. Yesterday he texted me and said, hey, this is what I'm thinking about doing. Uh, and he gave me these four points, and he says, Does that sound good? I said, man, it sounds good. I didn't know he was going to actually take <laughs> my sermon, or at least part of it. But that's okay, because some of you weren't here for that part. So, But I want you to know something. And I'm saying this in these words. I want you to know that the incarnation, the birth of Christ shockingly, has nothing to do with snow on December the 25th. I can assure you there was no snow on the ground when Christ was born. It has nothing to do with trees, lights, presents, getting or giving. It has nothing to do, and this will alarm a lot of you, with what we call Christmas music. And I'm not talking about the songs we just sang. I'm talking about things like Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. That, in our time, has become things that we call Christmas music. I probably just hit on some of y'all's favorite Christmas song. It has nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, to do with shopping, especially Black Friday, which actually starts on Thursday, I understand now. It has nothing to do with Santa Claus. It has nothing to do with reindeer. I even heard this one recently. It has nothing to do with somebody said Christmas season hasn't started till they have heard the B.C. Clark jingle. Now, you probably need to live in Oklahoma to understand that one. It has nothing to do with a Salvation Army bell outside of Walmart. I want you to know something. Jesus did not come to create a holiday. But the incarnation has everything to do with God becoming a man. It has everything to do with the virgin birth. 
It has everything to do with the Messiah has come. It has everything to do with Jesus is going to die for the sins of his people. It has everything to do with he is the sovereign Lord. So I don't want you to come away today taking a negative like the preachers today just beat up on our holiday. But what I want you to take from this is what, at this time of the year, what for centuries I'm assuming the world has celebrated as the birth of Christ. And I want you to understand something. This time of the year was most likely definitely not the time of year that Christ was born. I'm not going to go into all of the pagan roots of why people celebrated this time of the year and all that. But, but you need to understand that. So if you've got your Bibles with you, I want you to open up to Luke chapter 2. For those of you that don't carry your Bibles anymore and you use electronic device, would you turn that thing on to the gospel according to Luke in chapter 2? This section is actually broke up. There's 21 verses we're going to look at briefly. And it's actually broke up into sevens. The first seven verses are dealing with the birth of Christ. The second seven, 8 to 15, is dealing with what Randy touched on today, the shepherds and the angels. And then 15 through 21 is about the shepherds going and proclaiming the message. A couple of things. We're going to read this and... In the first seven verses, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor in Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of, of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, and who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. A couple of things I want to look at in this, and one is this. I want to just take a look at, at the sovereignty of God in this scene right here. Do you think it was an accident that Caesar Augustus decided that he wanted everybody to be registered? He wanted to know where everybody was from. He wanted to get a census of the people. And I will tell you this, that God sovereignly orchestrated this to happen. And how do I know that? Well, because I know that God is sovereign over all rulers, He's sovereign over all kingdoms, and all of these things. And it just so happened, if you want to say it like that, that Joseph, in verse 4, he went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And why did he do that? Because he was of the house and lineage of David. Two things there. One, it was prophesied in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, this, that it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, 
whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. It was prophesied that Christ would, would be born, would come from Bethlehem. I mean, do you, I mean you, when you really think about these things, just how God sovereignly orchestrates these things. And then it says that Joseph and Mary were to go because it says he was of the house and lineage of David. And he was to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, they were betrothed. It was like we would use the word engaged. But betrothal was much stronger than like our modern-day, what we would call an engagement. Or somebody's engaged to get married. If you were betrothed, in order to break that, you would actually have to get a divorce. Mary was looked at as his wife already, and he was his betrothed, and they were with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, the interesting thing on this is it says they were of the house and lineage of David. Joseph was from the royal line of David, and that's recorded in the book of Matthew. Mary brought forth Christ, gave birth to Christ. This was the bloodline that went all the way back to David. There's a lot more that can be said about that, but to understand it is like this. You need to understand that even humanly speaking, Jesus was the rightful heir to the throne. And how would that happen? Well, Mary was the firstborn of her family. Her father was Healy. She was the firstborn, and she had no brothers. So when Joseph married Mary... He became, by marriage, the son of Heli, which was actually Mary's father. And therefore, Jesus was the son of Joseph, which would have made him his legal firstborn. And so what you have is you have the bloodline through Mary, the son of David, and you have the royal line through Joseph, the son of David, and you come to this point in time that was prophesied of old, that Christ would come. He was going to be the son of David. So those are two very interesting things to look at in that. And you look at verse 7, and it says she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Verse 8, and it says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And Randy talked about this this morning. He says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. Now these shepherds are out in the hill country, and, and because of the place they were at, it indicates that most likely this would have been probably late spring, early summer, somewhere in that time. It would have been later that they would have been like in the mountainous areas. But they're out there tending with the sheep, keeping the sheep, and an angel appears to them. And this, and this light shines all about them, and they're filled with great fear. 
But the angel said to them, fear not. Now you think about that. Many times that angels appeared to people in the Old Testament, they came with a message of judgment, did they not? But they're greatly afraid and rightly so. But the angel says, fear not. Why do he say fear not? Because he says, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. I'm not bringing judgment. I'm not talking about wrath. I'm not talking about judgment. What I'm bringing you is good news. For a great joy that will be for all the people. Now, in the, time, in the time of Jesus, if you remember when Jesus, in chapter, chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at, at night, and he comes secretly, and, and he says, Rabbi, we, we know that you're come from God because nobody can do these things that you're doing except God is with him. Nicodemus knew that there was something different about this man. And even though the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees were opposed to him, They took note of the miracles and the words he spoke, and they said, nobody can do what you're doing except God's with them. They knew they weren't doing those things, and they're supposed to be God's elite. And as they had their conversation, Jesus responds with, unless you're born again, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of God. A A strange way of answering this flattery that he comes to Jesus with. But as they continue to talk, we, we discover that we, we see in this passage that who's Nicodemus looking for? He's looking for this Messiah that's supposed to come. And he's basically in his mind thinking, are you the one? And, and listen to this good news here. It says this good news will be for all the people. When Nicodemus is talking to Jesus and you get to John 3.16, it's taken so out of context. For God so loved the world that that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting eternal life. In context, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he's saying, I didn't just come here to save the Jews. I came here to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And I can promise you that Nicodemus was in shock. How do we know that he was for all the people? Well, if you look, look, look down in chapter 2, look over here at verse 32. But let me back up. This is when Simeon has Jesus, baby Jesus, in his arms, and he's blessing him. He's, he's blessing God and said, in verse 29, he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Simeon had been told that he would not die until he had seen the salvation of the Lord, the Lord's salvation. And he says in verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. He he says it right there. And yet we're so slow and and dull and slow to learn, aren't we? So this good news is coming. And what is this good news? He says, For unto you is born this day... In the city of David, in Bethlehem, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior. Interesting, his name would be called Jesus. Jesus is the New Testament version of the Old Testament name Joshua. 
The name Joshua means Savior. It means the Lord is salvation. Have you ever wondered, when you read back in the Exodus and all this, and Moses is leading the people out, and Moses had went through all of these difficulties, and, and he'd done all these things, and, and then at one point Moses, when he's told to, <clears throat> to, to uh, speak to the rock, Moses, he says, you rebels, must we fetch you water? And he smote the rock with his staff, and water came out. Must we, like him and God, must we do this for you again? And he, instead of speaking to the rock, God says, you're not going to take my people in. Now, that's the reason we read, but there was even a bigger reason why Moses didn't take the people into the promised land. You want to know what it was? Who was what was Moses known as? Moses was the giver of the law, wasn't he? He was, he was the law man, and guess what? The law could never take you to that that God has promised. The only one that can take you there is a Savior. And guess who replaced Moses? A man named Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation. It was all by divine, divine plan of God under his sovereign hand. But I want you to know this. A Savior, what does God save you from? Well, God saves you from sin, from Satan, from the world. He saves you from the law, death, and hell. But my question to you today is this. What does God ultimately save you from? This is one of the most astonishing questions I ever had to deal with. I was listening to a sermon by Paul Washer. I'd never heard this in my life. I'd always preached about the cross and how God saved us from sin. All these things I've read. And I remember as I listened to that sermon... I can remember my heart speeding up. It was beating hard. And I thought, is it safe to say that God has saved us from himself before he got to that point? You see, God has saved you from himself. He has saved you from his wrath that is to be poured out on every unbeliever. He is our Savior. And I want to make one thing clear. He is Savior. He is the author and the finisher. And everything that is in between, He is Savior alone. It's not Him and me are saving me. He is Savior. So we see first He's Savior. And then He says, and this Savior, who is He? Who is Christ? Christ what does that mean? Well, it's the, it's the New Testament. It's the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. The one that is chosen, the anointed one. <clears throat> this is the one that all the law and the prophets spoke of. <clears throat> when you think of Moses in, in Deuteronomy 18, when he said there's going to come a prophet, he's going to be like me, but it's him, that it's his words that you're going to need to listen to. He's going to be greater than me. We see this in the book of Hebrews when David said, The Lord said unto my Lord. Who was he referring to? He was referring to the son of David who was going to come in his lineage. But he says, The Lord said to my Lord. He was this one that everybody was looking for, this one that was going to be the Savior, this one that was going to restore all things. He was going to establish the kingdom. He was going to... He was going to rule the world eternally. It's the one that 
the priesthood pointed to all of the sacrifices, all of those things, it all pointed to Christ. And he fulfilled the true position as the Christ in the fact that he was truly prophet, priest, and king. When you look at prophet, priest, and kings, you'll go back and you'll find where they were anointed. You see where Moses anoints Aaron as the priesthood. You see where Elijah throws his mantle, anoints, calls, chooses Elisha to succeed him in his role. You see where Samuel on two occasions takes oil and he pours it on the head of Saul at one point and then on the head of David and he anoints him as the new king. And you see Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 coming to John and saying, I need to be baptized. And John responding with, I need to be baptized of you. Why are you coming to me? And he said, it behooves us to fulfill all righteousness. And John baptized him. When he came up out of the water, the Spirit of God descended upon Christ as a form of a dove. And they heard the voice of God saying, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. God was testifying to the fact that this is my chosen one. This is the one, my anointed one. What did a prophet do? Well, a prophet was one who spoke the words of God as God moved him. Jesus was God. Therefore, it was impossible for him to do anything but speak the words of God. In John 1, 1, what do we read? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John 3, 34, it says, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. Do you remember when... The, the, the Sanhedrin had sent the officers. They said, go arrest this Jesus. And they went and they heard him speak. And when they came back, they returned without him. And they said, why didn't you bring him? And they responded like this. They said, no one ever spoke like this man. How true that is. He was a prophet. And prophets were what? They were attested by God many times through miracles, weren't they? That's why Nicodemus came to Jesus. And he said, we know that you're from God because nobody can do these things. Do you remember when John, even though he testified and said, behold, the one I've been telling you about, the Lamb of God, this is him. I didn't know it was him, but now I know it's him. And then later, John's in prison and Jesus isn't doing exactly what John thought he was supposed to be doing either. And he sent his disciples to Jesus and he said, are you the one that we're looking for or is it another? And he says, you go tell John this. You tell him that the blind receive their sight, the deaf are hearing, the dead are raised. You go tell him those things. What was he saying? Yeah, John, I'm the one. I am the one. He was prophet. He was priest. The priesthood in the Old Testament was a continual daily offering of sacrifices for sins that could never be atoned for permanently. But in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12, he says this. He says, but when Christ had offered for 
for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. Let me go over here and read something else. In Hebrews chapter 7, 23 through 25, he says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from from continuing in office. I mean, Aaron died. His sons died. All of those priests, their priesthood never continued because they died. Somebody took their place. But he says, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He is eternal. He was before time. He's eternal. He lives forevermore. And consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ once for all offered himself the sacrifice to atone not only for our sins, but even all of those sins that those those priests in the Old Testament would offer up animals for sacrifice and all those days of atonement, all of those things. Everyone in the Old Testament was looking to this sacrifice. All of us today, we look back to the cross in this. I've heard people ask me this. They say, well, if Christ is making intercession, I mean, it's almost like we get this idea that every time I sin, I've got to go say, God, forgive me. And then God, or Christ is going to look at the Father and say, Father, like he's just, no, I want you to understand something. His very presence is what speaks intercession for us forever, that he is alive and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And thirdly, he is our king. Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Nathaniel said this in John. He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And you know what? Jesus did not correct him. He accepted the praise. He accepted the worship. Revelation 19, verse 16 On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus came into this world a baby in a manger. He left this world dying on a cross, and he's returning one day on a white horse as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And then thirdly, This good news of what's been born to us this day, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In Acts 2.36, at the end of Peter's sermon, he says, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What is he saying there? He is the sovereign Lord. It is the Greek word kurios, which means sovereign ruler. He is God. And in verse 12, it says, And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Listen to this. 
It says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, and among those with whom he is pleased. I want you to understand something that when, when, he, when it went from one angel, like Randy said today, he kind of used the Star Wars illustration of when they would hit light speed and all of a sudden they'd stop and there's all these spaceships, everything. And all of a sudden this, this one angel goes from that to a multitude, a multitude of angels. And the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest, glory to the most high God. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. He's not, so much of the time, we, 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 we see all these things at Christmas about peace on earth and, and these things. And they're, and they're talking about things that aren't going to happen. Talking about everybody getting along, all the, you know. No, Jesus, what did he say? I mean, he, he came to bring peace, right? Among those with whom he's pleased. He also said he came to bring a division, a sword. And in that, his peace is going to be for those among the ones that he is pleased with. Who is that? That is his chosen people. That is with whom he is pleased. So this is good news. And I like how Randy brought out the fact When he's speaking to the shepherds, he says, unto you. You know, shepherds were, and, and ladies, you're not going to like this for back then, but do you know that a woman's testimony was not even valid in a court of law back then? Women were so lowly esteemed that their testimony, and neither were shepherds as far as I know. They were about on the same level. Now, isn't it interesting that God uses shepherds that he's about to send them to go send this message that this good news has happened and i find there's some irony in that that he uses shepherds because in churches what are pastors they're shepherds and i find it odd that even in today's time that shepherds are looked at similarly to the shepherds then their testimony wasn't worth much right i find that in churches so much of the time instead of seeking counsel from the men that god has placed over you to watch out for your soul with the Word of God, so many people go to the professionals, the professional psychiatrist, the professional psychologist. I want you to understand something. Even though maybe the testimony of a shepherd that day was not valid in a court of law, truth is always truth. God's truth does not, not become truth because somebody less than what you think is speaking it. And so what happens here? In verse 15, it says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. I mean, out of all the people he could have made it known to. Can you, can you kind of understand why the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin had such a problem with this Jesus? They were the righteous elect. I mean, they were the elite, Right? Why wouldn't God come and tell them this was happening? But God uses these lowly shepherds who, they don't get to sleep at a home at night. They're with their sheep out in a field under the stars. And he says, even unto you. I loved how he put that this morning. Even unto you. You're not this 
group that everybody esteems as worthy of God. And when they went away from them into heaven, the angels left. The shepherds said, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing which, that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. Now, I want you to think about this. <laughs> They, they go to Bethlehem, and what are they looking for? He says, well, this is going to be the sign. This night there's been a baby born, and this is going to be the sign. He's, he's going to be wrapped in swaddling cloths, and he's going to be laying in a manger. Can you imagine him going to Bethlehem? I just imagine that there were more babies. I don't know if any more were born that night. But there were no doubt babies. They, they go into one place, and they look. This isn't the one. This isn't the one. And they finally come to this, this place, and we're not sure where it's at. There was no room in the inn, but oftentimes inn had places off of them where the animals stayed, and some people say it was in a cave. We don't really know for sure. God doesn't really tell us. But what we do know is he did give a sign. And he says, when you see this, this is the one that is the Savior. This is the this is the one that is the Christ. This is the one that is the Lord. Can you imagine what it felt like when they walked into this little place where they were at? And they see this baby. And it's wrapped in swaddling cloths. And Mary has laid him in a manger. Can you imagine how their heart started pounding in their chest? This is what the Lord told us. This is the sign. And then they start telling the people, we were out on the hill. We were out there with the sheep. And an angel appeared. There was a light that shone all around us. And they said, we were so afraid we thought we were going to die. And the angel said, don't be afraid. I have good news for you. For unto you this night. is born a Savior, a Messiah, the Lord. And all the people who heard it, they wondered at what the shepherd had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them, meditating them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The people wondered. You see, we, we read the Bible in light of history. We, we read it going into it knowing, at least in a general way, who Jesus was. And we, we read about all these people rejecting and not believing in Jesus. I want you to put yourself there at that time, and there's this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, and he's lying in a manger. And shepherds, whose testimony can't be trusted because they're shepherds, have come and said that angels have appeared to them, and the Messiah that we've all been looking for, this baby is him. The people were perplexed. They were in dismay. They were astonished. They were shocked. 
they were in wonder at the things that they had heard and the things they were seeing. This baby, I mean, they're not even officially technically married at this point, and she just gave birth. How could this be of God? How could this baby be the Son of God? So what is the message of the Incarnation? Would you turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53? We start in a manger... And we're going to end on a cross. I'm going to back up and I'm going to read part of 52. Beginning there in verse 13, the last three verses of 52, he says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance or semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see. And that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I want to ask you a question. Who could believe this impossible story? Who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has eyes to see this? Who has ears to hear this? It says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. For he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus didn't come to this world the way that we would think a king, a savior, a deliverer, a ruler, that God would come into the world. There was nothing about him that said this. He was despised and rejected by men. Can you imagine his growing up, what it was like? And we don't know about it because we have very, very few scriptures that tell us anything about his childhood. But I want you to remind you of one thing. Do you remember the time when the, 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 the rulers of Israel said, we know who our father is. Do you understand what they were saying is, we know about you. You don't even know who your father was. Your mother went on a trip. She came back pregnant, and they weren't even married. There's a lot of question about who your dad is. Can you imagine growing up with those kind of rumors being said about you just as a child? Said he was despised. He was rejected. He talked about how that the Son of Man was going to suffer many things at the hands of the people. He was acquainted with grief as, as one from whom men would hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. You know what he's saying? 
We, we, we failed to glorify him as who he was. Despite his words that he spoke, despite the miracles he performed, despite the mercy, the compassion, the love, the grace, everything about God, about him, the people despised him. They hid their faces, even his very own when they came and arrested Jesus in the garden, what did they do? They ran. They fled from his presence. And this is coming on the heels of, I'm willing to fight for you. I'm willing to die for you. And everyone else said, we're in agreement. Yeah, us too. And he singled Peter out who made the bold statement. And he says, you're going to deny me three times. You want to talk about hiding your face from him? You're one of them. You were with him, not me. A little bit later, no, you, you're, you're one of them. I, I know the way you're talking. I, I, I guarantee it wasn't me. I don't know him. And the third time, he began to curse and swear, I know not the man. And that third time, when Jesus turned and looked at him, in the book of Luke, it records that when they made eye contact, when Jesus turned and looked at Peter, Peter went and he wept bitterly. It means he wept bitter tears. He wept until it hurt. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. When you think about Jesus being nailed to the cross, they ran the spear in his side. When it talks about him being crushed, it's not talking about what men did. But when you look on down, it says in verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when jesus was in the garden what was it that jesus dreaded most you remember when he was in the garden father if it's your will if there's any if there's any other way let this cup pass from me nevertheless not not my will but your will be done what do you think jesus was dreading so much what do you think that he was so, such anguish about that he, that he says, if there's any other way, Father? You know what he was saying? Is there any other way to save Susan, Darren, Jennifer, Matt? There's no other way, son. There's no other way. So you want to know when that was? When it talks about here, with the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed, there was no greater wound. He was beaten. He was spit upon. He was whipped with a scourge. He was beaten with rods and he was crucified. But there was no greater pain that he suffered that when he cried out 
Eli, Eli, Lamos of Bakthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you turn to Psalms 22, he starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry. I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. He's saying, in you our fathers trusted They trusted in you, delivered them. Men who were sinners trusted in God, and God delivered them. Here is the sinless, perfect Son of God crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is this. Because it's the only way that I can save my people. It is the only way that I can save Boyd. You want to talk about our sins? You want to talk about it? He says, listen to what it says again. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He he took our sins. He put them on himself. He lived the perfect life that that the law demanded that you live, that you can spend eternity with God, and we could not do it. He lived it in our place. He died the death that we so much deserved. Not because he was a sinner, but because he took our sins and he bore them on himself. He suffered. He allowed himself to be crucified. He allowed himself to be rejected by those that he loved most. To be despised. To be beaten. And he he never opened his mouth. It goes on. And it says, all we like sheep, we've gone astray, we've turned everyone from, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We did exactly what we wanted to do, and everything we wanted to do was everything against God. It's not, a, it's not, a, it's not a, a good sound to hear that before we were in Christ, we were God-haters. I tell that to people and they'll say, I never hated God. I've always loved God. No, you love the God that you made in the image of your own mind. The God of your imagination, you love that God. But by your very words and by your very deeds and everything about you, the very intent of your heart, you hated God. And if you don't know Him today, you still hate Him. But for you, if that's you... 
He is still calling you to repentance. He is still pleading with you, come, come and be reconciled. Come, acknowledge what you are, repent of your sins and turn to Him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Scripture tells us he could have called ten legions of angels if he so wanted to, if he so desired. He didn't even need that to deliver him. He could have done anything he wanted to do. But what did he do? He fulfilled the counsel and the purpose and the will of God that was before time began for you and I. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, and although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. I find it incredible today that the preachers, the so-called established, some of the most solid theologians, seminary professors, preachers, who will sit there and talk about how horrid that when people like me and Randy and everybody here teach that God the Father poured His wrath out upon God the Son in our place. How they find that evil is what they say. How could they, hey, they say things like this. How could anybody serve a God like that? Well, I'll tell you. First of all, you don't understand God. Secondly, you don't understand you and your sin. And thirdly, you don't understand what God was doing. There was no other way for you to be reconciled. So I want to leave you with this today. When we look at the Christmas story, like Randy said, we should celebrate the birth of Christ, the incarnation, every day of the year. So at this time, what do we do with it? Do we throw everything away? We, we, we in one of the, which camp are you in today? I hope you're in the camp that's the right one. The one that says, I'm going to celebrate the incarnation, the birth of Christ, that God became flesh. The incarnate Word of God. If Christmas is all, if all it's ever been to you is just about getting presents and about a baby in a manger, and you know, and to be quite honest, in today's time, that part of even in our country's idea of Christmas, that part's been taken out. Even I can remember even being as a, as a child, Christmas, we always heard of it being about Jesus, but that was the Christmas specials that were not the ones we really wanted to see. But we, you know, it's like this is what it's about, though. I mean, you see these signs. I've seen a sign on the church coming to coming to Ada today. Jesus is the reason for the season. Should we really have to be reminded of that if that's true? 
Here's where I would like to leave you. I hope you understand what the good news of this baby in a manger was all about. This baby came to save his people from their sins. He was going to die for his people. That's what that baby was all about. And so in this time, I'm not going to tell you you can have Christmas trees or lights. To me, those are neither here nor there things to me. But what I hope you do get out of this and what I hope you do understand is this. I hope you teach your family. I hope you teach your children what the incarnation was all about. That he's not some baby in a manger, but he's a Savior who came to live and die for us. And he's coming back again as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that, as Christians... Listen, the culture we live in, every year at this time, there's this, there, there is a, a feeling, a, a sense that even in the worst of people, it's Christmas time. It's like people kind of tone down their wickedness, at least generally speaking. I know some people party even harder, okay? And it gets worse. And it's also a time of when there's a lot of suicides. There is something about it that people are thinking. But we as believers... We can use this time as an opportunity to really share with our children, our friends, our co-workers, our families, what this was really about. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father, this morning, God, I just want to come to you and I pray, Lord, that... that the reality of this never leaves us. That all of this was for the whole purpose of Jesus coming and dying to save his people. Let that always be our message, Father. I just want to pray for everyone that is here today. I know there's some that aren't here at six, some are out of town. I pray that you'd bless each one wherever they're at. And I ask you, God, today that you would get glory. I pray that as we go to wherever we're going, whether we're celebrating by by having a meal together with family today or tomorrow or both or whatever, God, let us not lose sight of Christ, that He is our Savior. He is our High Priest. He is the living Word of God. And he is our king, and he is Lord. Amen.